Welcome to the Visegrad Inside podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. Welcome to the new year. Wojciech Szybelski, Maus Maftian, uh, Visegrad Inside team, uh, ready to discuss uh, the important developments of the upcoming 365 days of, of 2023. It's the beginning of the year and uh, as we are dealing a lot with foresight, we will do a lot more actually in this year, uh, focusing on the future of Europe, filling in the gap of uh, Central European voices in the policy planning and strategy planning of the European Union with our new project that will be announced very shortly it's online but we can tell our listeners that in collaboration with the european commission we're starting four-year uh, heavy lifting on on getting civil society expert groups uh, broadly defined civil society voices from ce into into the processes that will that will help shape up the the strategies of the European uh, Union, including, and hopefully, you know, we'll show some impact there, the EU Global Strategy, the document that is going to be drafted under under the Spanish presidency. I mean, the work will start already under Swedish presidency of the EU, but in the second part of the year, when, when Spain takes over, it will be presented and, and discussed. This is where we are also hoping to be most active. So uh, we are also sending best uh, greetings to our Swedish and, and, and Spanish listeners, as we hope they will also um, find the time to, uh, to look into what we will produce and, and engage in conversations and, um, and policy discussions that we will bring. But now on to the dynamics of this, of this upcoming year. Uh, I think I was reading uh, recently the summary of 2022 in The Economist, where I fully agree that the year 2022 wasn't that bad uh, as, as people might initially think. It actually has shown that democracies are resilient uh, across the world, that you know, autocracies are, after all, not, not omnipotent. They are actually crumbling. Um, when it comes to their power effectiveness, uh, they do not deliver. While democracies so far, they struggle and they're not yet winning, but they're definitely stronger than anyone thought and expected. Now, I think that's true, but also 2022 was the uh, first year of this struggle. And that definitely shows resilience and strength on the side of democracies. That 2023, it will be a stretch. And one of these thin uh, red lines uh, that my that that will that may trigger uh, negative developments are usually their elections. There are several electoral races coming up in Czechia, in Bulgaria, uh, maybe probably definitely in Turkey. Uh, that's first part of the year. And from Central Eastern European perspective, Poland will be uh, the key electoral year. Um, and electoral race uh, for the general elections scheduled for October, the latest November 2023. So with, with all of that in place, maybe we first uh, look into what are the key topics, uh, Miles, what do you think, uh, which, which, which may be dominating or maybe so important 
during that time. One of the key topics that we need to remember when it comes to obviously the war going on and and elections is disinformation. Disinformation, misinformation. Um, I think we should more broadly think about it as foreign malign influence in the sense too, right? Uh, there's certain aspects of disinformation that we're kind of failing to capture when it comes to foreign malign influence. And that could be anything from hardware, software that we're using um, to obviously fake news, hoaxes, um, trolls, all of these kinds of things. So whenever you have any sort of political event, political moment um, of unease, uh, which is bound to to happen in, in 2023, plus these elections, that is going to be ripe for the area of disinformation. I'd probably say that's the main one that we should look out for topically. Yeah, we are, and we are, and and we have also at the end of 2022, we published uh, Alina Barganau's piece on also the topics of disinfo, kind of mapping out the key, the key um, narratives that underpin disinfo messaging. At the same time, we know from the research from from our partner, uh, we actually co-founded this project, ABT Shield that um, there are like hundreds of new micro narratives coming up uh, every day on social media in relations to in relations to, to those big ones to the to the big narratives but wh- why don't we why don't we speculate a bit on, on on those that may be emerging so what's your bet uh, miles which will dominate the space of central europe almost always there is some american an anti-american uh anti-nato anti-military sentiment that that we've seen basically starting with not even just covid but more specifically in in Ukraine, we saw this. It, it's something that can really take hold in places like Slovakia, uh, like in Hungary as well. Well, let's let's remember then for, that for Slovakia, uh, the year 2023 will be partly for sure electoral year because they will go into elections early 2024, but they may have early elections, in fact. And uh, part of this early election narrative might be very, very strongly relating to the pro-Russian um, sentiments or at least you know the, the demonstrations that are sponsored by, by one of the opposition parties. Yeah. So I think that this, uh, this is a huge narrative. But there's also different elements. I think it's not just the narratives themselves. I think what is happening with disinformation, it's getting, these disinformation agents are getting smarter in the sense that they're trying to now target sort of strategic sectors. And what I mean by strategic sectors is, you know, the, the farming and agricultural sector in, in Poland was actually targeted um, tremendously. I think the banking sector and so forth. So I think when you kind of look ahead and you think, well, we don't know exactly when the war will end, but there is also this element of which companies, which strategic sectors are the ones that are going to be essentially looked at in this way where they can build some kind of distrust in some yeah. way. Shape. And yes, these are strategic elements of, I mean, the strategic sectors of the economy that, that we need to keep our democracies going. Um, and, and, and you rightly pointed out that, that there, there is a distrust in, in the economic actors, in business actors, in industries uh, that is funneled through the, uh, from, from these big, big stories, big disinfo narratives. But at the end of the day, um, they were also very, very pointed at the military industry, the defense industry, 
And I think uh, we, we've seen that also through the publications we have had throughout the year, uh, that in Poland that was um, such a sentiment has been built around like May, um, May, June and spring 2022. The, that message has been pushed uh, across the media that, you know, who benefits from this war and of course the military defense industry. With the war continuing in Ukraine, which is our prediction, this is our expectation um, from the foresight, and unfortunately that is so, uh, that we do not see uh, an immediate resolution to this conflict, uh, not with the current leadership in Moscow, and probably not so so easily with the, with the next, uh, as we outlined in the War and the Future of Europe uh, report. There will be um, there will be a, a buildup of of uh, military defense uh, industry effort to supply Ukraine. I mean, uh, ammo uh, for one. That is that is the big topic of today. How Ukraine will need more ammunition to continue to fight back, uh, to regain uh, their uh, their uh, legally uh, uh, recognized and, and legally uh, proper legal boundaries of, of the country. All this will come in a very turbulent economic times uh, where we hear from all around that unemployment is expected to rise and inflation hasn't stopped for Central Europeans uh, specifically. So I, I think that is that is super important to um, to take into consideration that that in the in the narratives uh, that are building up uh, this economic uh, aspect uh, combined with defense will be prevalent and we need to address that yeah and I think you know connecting it to to kind of the pillar that we are always looking at this democratic security I think it's super important to also look at what states are actually doing in order to combat these disinformation narratives, right? So I have, I'm not going to say an issue, but I'm saying that on the horizon, we should kind of um, sort of take a step back. So I have been seeing banning of a lot of websites. Uh, I have been seeing banning of, of Russian uh, media. I've seen it in the Visegrad countries. We've seen banning of symbols as I kind of wrote about and so forth. So I think the question there is, is just how far can we actually go? And uh, what essentially are we going to do in order to combat this? And how is this matter for democratic security principles? Yeah, well, we can always ban and put borders, but this is already um, uh, a, a defensive strategy. This is not a winning strategy in terms of democratic security. So there are, there are these efforts that once you realize that you've been already undermined, you try to cut out the roots uh, somewhere. But, uh, or actually, these are not the roots. Um, the roots are there in because the media system is uh, in this in dire situation, especially when it, when you look at the uh, local news environment. That the problem hasn't gone away, and without the functioning and and pluralistic uh, media environment on the local level, on the level that you know gets to the people in the countryside. I mean, in remote areas, not in the big urban areas, we're losing the fight because those are exactly the voter groups that uh, that feel uh, disconnected and they seek uh, very often to to find uh, the guilty find the you know the responsible ones for their misfortunes and they are likely to find it when someone brings it on a plate so these groups are easily identified and there is very little being done 
really to address that. And it cannot be done in, in any systematic, you know, strategic communication response, just like from top down, because democracy is not grown top down. Democracies are grown bottom up and they need the key pillars, which are the news media and news media organizations uh, being present, being independent in the countryside. So that doesn't, doesn't show as a very promising picture, if, given the, also the electoral races in Poland. We know that the government is only doubling its effort to cut out the access to information, to the pluralistic media space. We call it information sovereignty of the democracy and to uh, serve just like in Hungary, uh, only <laughs> government dominated uh, news uh, yeah, or other propaganda uh, cycle. And very recently, we also learned that it's it's going to influence more than one and a half million of voters. That's the estimate when they will be denied in this country areas, uh, in the countryside areas of Poland, access to the big TV uh, stations that are independent. They are non-government stations with the te- under the pretext of you know technological change that has been planned for long and many of that is estimated number a million and a half uh, will not have access to more modern tvs or adapters for this um, new digital multiplex and that will mean that will keep going uh, on the old system on which the independent uh, media broadcasters will not be allowed anymore so that will create a very uneven space. And and speaking of elections, we still should remember that you win elections still in the digital age with the evening news. Um, so that just shows, I mean, it's, uh, we should be exploring that more in, in detail further on uh, throughout the year. But as you spoke of this info, it's not just the topics, but they, these are also the structures. On the positive side, I just wanted to uh, highlight that in several countries of the region where the media system hasn't been hijacked so much, there is a there is a genuine effort to to make it more resilient before there could be any uh, negative developments like in Hungary or currently in Poland, and the legislators are trying to step up uh, their national efforts in conjunction also with the EU New Media Act. Uh, media freedom act well we'll see how that goes and uh, whether and how they are successful but uh, it's it's not just uh, that the media are in retreat they are fighting back and they have allies in the civil society and uh, fortunately in the in several legislations the legislative one thing that I think our listeners would want to know about, and I'm consistently trying to find this answer, is what's going to happen with these these EU funds, right? From your perspective, obviously, the this matters a, a ton. Is it linked to the elections? What's going to happen yeah. here? Well, uh, you you know that that we've published a lot of uh, stuff on 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 that uh, issue, but I will stick to my argument, which which seems to be in in case of Poland still a prediction that Poland will not see EU funds until 2004. And that's a piece I wrote in September last year. And it explains the party dynamics and the political actors dynamics between the the key stakeholders in, in the government where the minority fraction of Mr. Jobro is uh, making any possible effort to undermine the Prime Minister Morawiecki, who may not even see the, uh, you know, the he, he may not be in power uh, if he is even in power in uh, in in the government until until the elections, it, because uh, 
Mr. Jambro's ultimate goal is not for Poland to win the money, but for Mr. Morawiecki to go away. And there is, um, it's a bulldog under the carpet fight that Mr. Kaczynski observes and apparently is irritated with, but he can't do much because Mr. Jambro has his votes. And then there is also President Duda, who, who doesn't want to essentially probably to, to, to be omitted in the process of, of bargaining, political bargains uh, between these centers of powers. And he has been omitted more often than not by uh, the decision makers in the party. So, so uh, this very complex decision making structure is producing a very unlikely outcome of, of sorting out the rule of law in Poland to the point which will be accepted by the commission and objectively uh, by everyone else uh, as a as a you know problem solved money flow. Uh, similarly, I think we wrote about Hungary that Hungary can do with this government next to nothing that they are they're going they're stranded in 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 the situation when they might be seeing some of the money but they will be under investigation for corrupt practices and they're unlikely to solve them especially as the crisis will uh, bring more incentives for the power uh, power holding groups just to just to grab the funds and in untransparent ways that Viktor Orban has been only sponsoring throughout his rule, which will uh, backfire eventually. So I think that, yeah, that, that is, that is you're very right to point out to this, that this is going to be the continuous issue throughout the year. Yeah, and I think that that's obviously really connected to uh, economic turbulence, right? So this is obviously a topical aspect of what we're going to be looking at throughout 2023. I mean, the inflation that we're seeing, um, the release of these sort of EU funds are kind of contingent on this and the migration that another wave of migration that that could come obviously is all sort of part of right yeah correct i mean we have seen already tensions uh, that were underreported between uh, i mean we have reported about it but the seriousness of that issue is is, is coming back because through the land uh, border of I mean, <coughs> Schengen border, uh, there were coming uh, there were coming numbers of migrants that Hungary has been letting through to Slovakia, and through Slovakia they were going to Czech Republic and to Austria. Slovakia has has seen border controls uh, uh, reinstated by their neighbors, Austria and, and Czech Republic. Otherwise, very good neighbors uh, having very good relations with Slovakia. And this just shows, I think, that the far-right agenda will be continuously being built on it, just like um, Austria has um, has been blocking, as, as, as one of our fellows explained, and, uh, Adrian, right? He, he wrote... Uh, at the end of uh, last year, that, that this the blocking of, of, of Schengen will, will backfire in, in Romania and Bulgaria, the blocking of Austria. And for what we know, Austria has been blocking it specifically because of the partisan agenda, the far-right agenda, just to mitigate the risks of the, of the ruling party uh, related to giving up territory, giving up the turf. To, to those guys who are building up themselves on, on the far right. So I think, yeah, yeah, you're right that this, this narrative will be extremely important. Yeah, and I think that that's, that's a somewhat of a shame because uh, uh, one thing that we've focused on and that we've done a lot of work in relation to is the Three Seas Initiative, right? And you kind of look at, you look at the case of, of Romania and instead of it being sort of its window of opportunity, 
uh, to sort of knit these kind of strategic interests with this clear sort of more cohesive and courageous vision for, for the entire region, you have the stink of the actual Schengen veto, right? Um, but, yeah. but you know that this is going to be a major uh, opportunity for, for Romania. Yeah, especially the Austrians uh, were kind of signaling that they will not vote it, not veto it again. So it may be tabled again um, on the on the council level, and and uh, the EU may approve uh, Schengen for for both countries, at least Romania. Uh, yeah, and then that will that will be so. You know, it would also show so much in terms of what's needed in terms of connectivity across the region. Three Seas Initiative is all about enabling um, uh, the region to be more connected and overcome its legacy problems of being disconnected and being ruled by the geopolitics, which is always external to the region. Um, and instead to define its own fate through establishing links, building up the European project from within, from, from you know, from building up the connectivity north and south. So Romania definitely will, uh, will be in the center of, of this whole discussions. And, and with the Three Cs initiative, if they actually uh, make it not just about the transatlantic links, uh, which are of course important and security in NATO, logistical and energy security, so so very important. Um, and also the China influence, so very important in the region as the three Cs is basically a counterweight to uh, to the ambitions of China that are failing in the region, but still that effort of building up the uh, agency of Central Europe must be upkept. Um, I think Romania may be in a in a good spot for, as you said, uh, using this opportunity, even though it didn't want to be presiding immediately, like it wasn't like the first in the line to, to preside the Three Seas Initiative. It took it uh, from uh, the Latvian presidency because, in a way, nobody else wanted. I think Romania may be a very important actor in in this in this year uh, through shaping uh, uh, and stepping up here. Also, because uh, when we spoke about the economy, Romanian, <clears throat> Romanian economy is not doing bad. It is actually, um, it, it's, it's one of the wonders of, uh, of the European and Central European um, uh, economic theater that, that this, is, uh, this country is, is just booming. Uh, yeah, so that's promising. When you talked about sort of the transatlantic element of the, the three C's, I guess the last sort of major topic is is Ukraine, right? Um, and I, we can certainly speak of this from a Central European perspective. I think that's incredibly important. But as I wrote previously, I think the the transatlantic alliance and and what exactly is going to happen now. Um, in in the U.S., I mean, w- what we just saw essentially last week is that uh, you know Zelensky went to Congress. He his message was obviously very well received. He had these standing ovations, um, and he had this warm reception. But several Republican lawmakers, and I think that this is a sort of sign of what's to come, uh, because these are ones who are you know set to assume these leadership positions. They're they're not ready to to commit to keeping uh, the funding going in in the next session, right? 
So this is going to be extremely um, important because as you can see right now, I mean, the U.S. being um, a huge part of, of uh, Ukrainian f like funding to Ukraine for the here, uh, now, and for the future. Yeah, but uh, here is also where, uh, where European Union and the European partners can do so much more. There is, there is enormous help. I mean, the, 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 that, that, that leadership that U.S. has been demonstrating in, in supporting uh, free and democratic Ukraine is, I mean, this is what saved uh, the country next to their own effort. But we should not forget that the EU has enacted an, a very ambitious uh, aid package, this 18 billion euro, which is half of, of uh, declared needs of, of the government of, of, of Ukraine. And it will need to step up. And similar, we see from individual countries of the European Union that this, this help and willingness, a willingness to help and support Ukraine is also coming, uh, coming uh, in. So I think this is a great moment uh, for Europe uh, to, to show and demonstrate also ahead of 2024 elections of that it is capable of building up its autonomy uh, in conjunction with with the united states against autonomy against the autocratic powers like russia or china in in making sure that it can act when uh when asked fine but also when it sees it is in the, its vital and, and, and um, strategic interest to, to support the struggle for freedom in its um, in its very neighborhood. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see your War in the Future of Europe report, several of the scenarios that you basically laid out, how precisely this is going to go about. And, you know, that's kind of part of um, the reasoning behind why we, we do this in the first place, to kind of have this and reflect on this uh, throughout 23 and, and obviously into the future. That's exactly why we're also posting in the next two episodes will be um, highlighting, I mean, the previous one has and, and, the, um, and the upcoming will um, bring in the recordings of the discussions, which I think many, many could have missed. And they were, they were really great ones. We we had these conversations from with people from all across Europe, from the top think tanks um, and the media, and policy advisors uh, who who spoke on on this uh, uh, in the context of our report on this um, on this thing for uh, on this on the who spoke on uh, on the need for Europe to to build up uh, you know its potential and uh, and in, an influence in also in global affairs but not forgetting the, the democratic roots of, of its beginnings so I think yes there there are so many topics still to discuss there is uh, we, we, we should be actually maybe planning for uh, writing more and, and talking more about the importance of the Turkey elections we will have a conversation about Czech presidential elections uh, early in, in, in January and so we will have a whole uh, week of these discussions about uh, Czech state of Czech Republic uh, ahead and around these elections so stay uh, stay focused we will be watching closely also one other issue that is important in the upcoming year that will be 
uh, an attempt to uh, drive a wedge between Ukrainian and Polish relations based on the 2023 uh, anniversary of the of the Volyn massacre eight years ago that the Ukrainian nationalists have been um well they they have been massacring uh polish population in the border region but we see also the leadership effort from ukraine and poland to actually mitigate that risk without compromising the process of um of of solving this difficult issue or you know um, um laying the just foundations for for the future um uh, based based on the common recognition and Mm, uh, of, of, of claims um, and proper investigations. We will see China and Taiwan relations um, being more into bring brought into the focus of Central European affairs as countries of sea are decoupling from China. Uh, they're building more strong, stronger ties with Taiwan. Taiwan is more aware of the role of Central Europe. So we see more uh, interaction and involvement of Taiwan in the region. And we will see also the continuity of the European political community with Moldova holding uh, the next meeting. Uh, mentioning that probably also links again to the war in the future of Europe report where scenario number two explains in detail the logic uh, before it started to happen, before it was rolled out uh, and, and embraced by, by Britain, importantly, and others uh, in October. Um, and so if you want to, to know more and, and, uh, and think through the scenarios for, for the future of Europe also in this context, uh, go get one of our copies. And importantly, we still have an ongoing promo, right? This is, uh, we, we may link that in the, uh, in the, in the podcast but, uh, episode, but do subscribe to Visegrad Inside. It will cost you for annual subscription only half the price uh, if you subscribe until when? January? 10th of January. Until 10th of January. So do subscribe now. Uh, check uh, for on our website and also the podcast description for the promo code. It will, it will allow you to get a great discount and be invited to our events uh, and receive our weekly and, and monthly foresight reports uh, from the region on democratic security. I'm here with Michal Zabotsky. Uh, Michal is our climate and democracy editor. Uh, Michal, this week we were trying to think a little bit of, of what's coming ahead. And obviously the major thing is the Czech elections, right? So, so Czechia holds its first round of, of presidential elections. And it's safe to say that there's a pretty strong candidacy of Babish. Uh, here and the the interesting part is is he's actually Slovak, right? Um, and right now you can say that it's it's safe to say that he's put quite a footprint in Czech politics uh, in recent years. So it's a really symbolic year this year. And and I wanted to sort of ask this question: Is there going to be a new velvet divorce? <laughs> I would say. Uh, first of all, uh, Babish is the last Czechoslovak. Right. Uh, that's uh, and what does that matter? Point. And uh, for uh, as it seems for many people, the divorce uh, was a bad idea because they still vote for uh, for the outdated ideas. They still want to have the country like, like it existed thirty years ago. Right. So 
it's it's pretty sad, I would say, but all the polls show that Babish, uh, whoever is his opponent, would lose the second round. So, is that right? So I have a lot of confidence in the Czech democracy, especially taking into account my corris- uh, foreign correspondent experience there. So uh, I, I'm pretty sure Babish will will not uh, be the next president of Czech Republic. And what is more important he will stay uh, i mean he will he will uh, finally uh, have uh, his court case started so is that right and you think this would be obviously a good thing for Czech yes Rangers? and I, i i am pretty convinced of that